You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 35 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Leah and I are happy to welcome back to the podcast member Graham. And we're also happy to invite and be talking with, for the first time, Meg Sweeney, a project manager and investigator in our Office of Highway Safety, and Michelle Beck-George, an investigator in charge in our Office of Highway Safety. Thank you for joining, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. It's good to see and talk to everyone today. Um, As we do in all of our podcasts, um, we allow our guests an opportunity to share a little bit about their background um, and how they got to the board. And Member Graham, we recently had a chance to interview you um, a few months ago, I suppose now, um, and we got your full background on episode 31 of the podcast. But um, for any new listeners and for us, will you just please remind us uh, when you joined the board and give us a high-level overview of your career prior to your arrival at the board? You bet. Thank you. Yeah, I was uh, sworn into the NTSB this year on January 3rd. Uh, prior to coming to the board, uh, I my entire career has been in aviation, uh, it started in the Navy, uh, flying uh, A-7s and F-18s off of the aircraft carriers. I did that for about nine years. I got out of the Navy and uh, worked for a military contractor and uh, uh, of, uh, basically the F-18, McDonnell Douglas at the time, worked as a uh, training specialist and an uh, avionics integration engineer. And then after that, I went to uh, Cessna and also Beechcraft uh, 22 years prior to coming to the board. I did everything from uh, demonstration pilot, flight test pilot. In the last several years, I was the director for all the flight operations, uh, safety, security, and standardization uh, before coming to the board. So I have an extensive background in in aviation safety and safety management systems. Yeah, thank you. And again, for our listeners, uh, we had Member Graham on on episode 31. So be sure to tune into that one and and listen to his full background in that great conversation. Meg and Michelle, this is your first time on the podcast. So I'd like to give you an opportunity to share about your backgrounds and how you arrived at the NTSB. So Meg, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I came the NTSB in the mid-1990s, just as I was finishing up some graduate work. Um, and I started off in the Office of Safety Studies, which is in the Office of Research and Engineering. And we focused in that department on doing longer-term studies and um, looking across multiple modes. But one of the things I did was spend a lot of time analyzing data, including school bus crash data mm-hmm. in that office. Um, I took a couple of years and went over to the Bureau of Transportation Statistics in the Department of Transportation, mm-hmm. um, and then came back to the NTSB, um, working in the Office of Highway Safety, where I did project management and report writing. And sometimes, you know, life throws a little curve at you, and, it, and I was um, <laughs> married to the active duty Air Force officer, so he finally got an assignment over overseas, and mm. so we jumped on that and spent the next 10 years kind of back and forth between um, England, Germany, and the U.S. And um, finally got reassigned to the Pentagon, so ended up back up here in D.C. Um, Office of Highway Safety had an opening, and I, um, timing all lined up. I reapplied for the third time and came back to the <laughs> NTSB for the third time of just about um, a little bit more than a year ago. Oh, that's Great. cool. 
I really love hearing about stories like that. And it just kind of demonstrates we have a lot of employees here at NTSB who um, have been here long term or have, you know, been here and then gone away somewhere and then come back. So I just love hearing stories like that. Thanks for sharing. Uh, Michelle, how about you? Um, well, I came to the NTSB back also in the mid-1990s and joined up um, as an intern. And back then, we didn't pay our interns. It was you try to come in and do them for free and, and see if you could get hired when it was all over with. So when I finished my master's degree, um, I was still kind of in and out of doing internships with the NTSB and joined full-time as an investigator. Um, I was in the Survival and Human Factors Division in the Office of Surface Transportation. And since that time, um, we have reorganized. And so now that we have the Office of Highway Safety, but when I first started, I was doing multimodal investigations. I've done rail um, to survival factors. I even worked on TWA 800 a little bit, worked on Alaska Air with TDA. Um, that's our Transportation Disaster Assistance Group. Mm -hmm. I've done um, some marine accident investigations and a lot of school buses, a lot of school bus crash investigations. And so um, I am now full-time in the Office of Highway Safety. So this is coming up on my, let's see, Labor Day weekend will be 25 years I've been with the board. And wow. it has flown by. It has absolutely mm -hmm. flown by. But um, I am now a uh, supervisory investigator in charge. And I've also done the project management work um, like Meg's doing. So I feel like we've we've covered school bus safety in quite a few different ways. So I'm excited to be here and talking about it today. Yeah, thanks. Did you say what your, um, what your master's degree was in? Um, I have a master's in forensic science and an okay. undergraduate in criminal justice and law. Okay, great. Um, so... Today, like uh, Stephanie indicated, we're going to be talking about school bus uh, safety, school transportation safety. Um, where, we're our, where we are in the COVID-19 space has really changed, obviously, how children attend and get to school. And as transportation, as school transportation directors and caregivers and parents prepare or have started to get their students uh, returning to school, we wanted to take the time to just have a conversation about school buses as the safest form of safest form of student transportation and also touch on our special investigation report on selective issues in school bus transportation safety, some crashes in Baltimore or a crash in Baltimore, Maryland and Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then two recent NTSB investigations, which involved uh, driver oversight, seat belts, fire suppression systems and school bus routing. That's a lot of stuff that we're going to be covering <laughs> over the next um you know, hour that we're together, but um, we think it's a really good timing um, as as schools are looking at opening back up and and uh, remind everyone the importance of school bus transportation safety. Um, before we talk, jump into talking more about these things, um, Meg, would you share any perspective on how the school transportation community has changed or had to adjust since March and since uh, all the schools kind of closed down temporarily? Yeah. Um I mean, March, everything just came to a halt. Education kind of came to a halt. They, most schools took a couple of weeks and, and tried to go virtual. And so mm -hmm. school buses kind of came to a halt as well. Um, and I think many of us were hoping that the fall would, would bring back some sort of normalcy to, to our students. But I think that that's not happening in many, in some, in lots of areas around the country. Um, you know, most are either going virtually back to school or they're doing some sort of hybrid scheduling. Um, my son's a senior, starting a senior year of high school, and he's gone um, completely virtual 
mm-hmm. um, for the time being. Still hoping that some face-to-face activity um, might happen. But along with that, the school bus industries had to adjust. Um, whether it's um, altering their schedules because they have to have fewer students on buses. So does this mean that they make multiple trips? Um, are there just fewer students because some will be virtual versus some will be face-to-face? Um, other things that they have had to do is, is address the whole mask wearing issue on buses mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and what happens when a student shows up at the bus stop without a mask. Will the bus drivers be able to account for some of that and have extra masks on hand? Um, there's also been some exploration of putting in plexiglass um, as a barrier, um, particularly between the driver and the students, for some added protection there. Um, and then on top of it all, the DMVs, Departments of Motor Vehicles, shut down across the country, mm-hmm. which added another problem with CDL licensing and ensuring that people were kept up to date. And so even under best of circumstances, we tend to have a driver shortage of school buses. So this sure. was just an added added complexity to that. Uh, but let's give the school bus industry some some credit here. They really mm-hmm. jumped right in and, and started to tackle this it's, it's right in the spring. And so our three major bus associations, the uh, National Association of People Transportation, the National Association of State Directors of Student of um, Student of Transportation Services, NAS, NASDEPS, and the National School Transportation Association, um, they've been hosting webinars. They've been putting out some guidance to assist the um, school dis- um, transportation directors on how to handle all of this. Um, and then in addition, those areas that aren't using school buses to transport children, they're mm-hmm. trying to find various ways to use the school buses and um, school bus drivers. So, for example, where we live um, here in the D.C. area, several of the school buses and their drivers were used to distribute lunches to our students because they that was one of their purposes was to go around and, and provide lunches. Some of the bus drivers and, and uh, buses have been used to distribute um, some technology, whether it's a computer or some sort of um, Wi-Fi connection for students to connect to a virtual environment. Mm-hmm. So using these systems in the school bus industry and the school buses, drivers, people, we've all had to adjust uh, for today's environment. Absolutely. Sure. Member Graham, one of the um, one of the areas of focus for the NTSB is uh, school bus safety. It's an issue that we've been long concerned with, um, and actually, even during um, this time of COVID, we actually released um, a, one of our school transportation related reports. Can you just talk a little bit about why school bus and school transportation safety is such a priority for NTSB? You bet. Um, The safety of our kids is a top priority for the NTSB. And every day across the country, nearly a half million buses carry more than 25 million students to and from school and to their various activities. And in this case, the parents entrust their children's safety to another entity, the school district or a uh, bus company, to care for their children. And the NTSB wants to protect public and parental confidence that the school buses or the school bus is the safest vehicle for transporting their children to and from school. Through the NTSB's thorough investigations and relentless advocacy that ensures school buses maintain their stellar safety record as they safely transport kids across the country. 
Yeah. Um, Member Graham, you just mentioned that school buses are the safest mode of transportation. Um, And just for some reference, from 2009 to 2018, there were 249 school-aged children killed in school bus-related crashes. Um, Of those 249 school-age fatalities in that 10 years, um, 52 were occupants inside the school bus. And this compares to over 35,000 traffic-related fatalities annually. Um, A recent NHTSA study suggests that a school bus is 20 times safer than a parent uh, driving their their child to school and 50 times safer safer than friends or siblings driving uh, him or herself. Um, to school, to and from school. So when you say the school transport, school bus is the safest mode of transportation for kids, what, what is it about the school bus that makes them the safest mode? Well, I think there's, there's two things. Uh, one is the design of the school bus, and two is the, the laws that are out there in each state. So when we talk about design, uh, one of the features is the interior design. It's built to compartmental, it compartmentalize uh, the the passenger in this case it's a pack, passive occupant protection system which mm-hmm. means the student doesn't have to do anything right they just have to sit in the seat and uh, the way the seats design it has a uh, it's energy absorbing steel interior structure it uh, has the high padded seat back and it's secured to the floor so this works really well in front and rear crashes but it's kind of incomplete as far as safety goes with side impacts and rollover crashes. The other part of the design is the exterior of the bus. Uh, we're all used to seeing that high visible yellow colored bus and everybody mm-hmm. knows the school bus is out there when they see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is we know there's flashing lights, the yellow caution lights, and then the red flashing lights that it's stopping with the uh, flashing or the uh, stop arm that comes out to the side that can be seen from both directions, the lights and the stop arm, mm-hmm. and then and then the uh, the second thing was the laws. It's it's illegal to pass a, a stopped uh, school bus that has the lights and the stop arms out there. Mm-hmm. So although uh, school buses are extremely safe, the NTSB continues to investigate uh, school bus crashes in which fatalities and injuries occur. Uh, recent investigations have demonstrated that effective route planning lap at shoulder belts, improved driver oversight, and collision avoidance systems can further improve school bus safety and protect our students. Sure. Yeah. I know um, you were talking about the the uh, compartmentalization being the technology that is in school buses. Um, and we often say it's kind of like the, the egg carton, the egg crate that people are used to. So that's it's similar design to that. But one of the questions that um, we often get is the, the question about seatbelts on school buses. And so that's something that the NTSB has advocated for for quite some time, but just recently actually said that as school districts are considering purchasing new school buses, that they really need to be um, purchasing those with lap and shoulder belts. Michelle, can you talk a little bit about um, just the added safety benefit of, of seatbelts on school buses? Sure. Um, you know, we, as you said, we have been advocating for seatbelts on school buses for a long, long time. You know, some of our first seatbelt recommendations were back in the seventies. And, you know, even in 1999, we had some more recommendations that came through. And, you know, we've gone to the National, um, Highway Traffic Safety Administration to request that they require seatbelts on school buses. And part of the reason for that, 
And part of the reason we feel that that's the best form of protection for kids on school buses is that not every uh, crash is a straightforward 30 mile an hour into a barrier, which is how you test kind of for the compartmentalization concept, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these crashes are um, involving buses where they're making a either an evasive maneuver because the school bus driver is attempting to avoid a crash, which is where, you know, you start to say, well, what other technologies can we introduce that help that bus driver? So that's why we've talked about, as Member Graham talked about, we are looking at electronic stability control. We're looking at collision avoidance. We're looking at improving the training of our school bus drivers and their qualifications. But that other component is in the event a crash does occur, and in the event there is some movement of the kids outside of that egg carton concept, mm-hmm. you know, they're moving about, they're, they might be sliding off the seat. How do we make them sit in that spot so that the school bus can do what it does best, which is protect those kids? And that's the three-point seatbelt. And we feel that three-point, meaning the lap and shoulder part, is just the absolute best way to transport kids. We, we transport them that way in our cars. And we like to transport them that way in our buses. And I think the board has tried every avenue to have school districts go ahead and put those in their school buses. States require it of their school districts and also um, federally require that of school buses. And I think we're seeing such a huge push in a dramatic direction of, in, in our view, a wonderful reaction by school districts and school bus drivers and states about just how much farther they can get that perfect school bus to be really, really perfect and aim for that, you know, almost zero number instead of seeing even 52 fatalities in school buses. We'd like to see zero. And how mm-hmm. can we perfect the school bus even more so? And, and, you know, it involves everybody. It involves the districts and their training of the drivers. It involves the districts and their purchases of buses with three-point belts. And it involves the school bus industry and putting some of these things on their buses as standard equipment, not optional. And that's kind of where the board has been going in these last several years is really trying to to get folks to understand just how much better we can make that that already amazing safe bit of transportation, which is the school bus. And, and school bus drivers and, and school bus transportation officials are doing such an amazing job, but we just want to give them even more tools to really protect the kids on their way to and from school. Sure. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned some states have enacted legislation on requiring new school buses to be equipped with the lap and shoulder belts um, when they're purchasing new school buses um, and that school districts should invest in buses with lap and shoulder belts. But there are a lot of bu- uh, buses on the road still that don't have um, these this equipment. So what about the school buses that are already in use and all the, on the roads that don't have lap and shoulder belts? Are they still safe? I would absolutely say they're still safe. Um, one of the things that I will talk about, though, is a lot of the school bus industry, we've been meeting with them and talking with them and visiting their production sites and, and really looking at how are they putting the buses together to kind of not only phase in, because again, a lot of times these new buses are, it's optional to purchase a three-point belt and it's been optional for a while. Mm -hmm. So these buses are already built to put those three-point belts on. A lot of the companies that build the seats that can have three-point belts, you know, if school districts wanted to go back and retrofit their school buses, they can in a lot of instances. So that's something that you don't need to buy an entirely new bus. You can go back and retrofit for a lap and shoulder belt. But for those buses that are out on the road and those parents that have some concern, again, the statistics are that 
your kid is still safer in a school bus. Your child Mm -hmm. can still get to and from school and their activities in the safest method possible by being in that school bus. And we're not trying to take away from the buses that are on the road. We're just trying to actively strive to continue to improve the safety of the school buses that are out there. And that's kind of our point is that we're looking at areas where we can sort of fill the gap and make it as safe as possible. We're not saying that just because we identify that lap and shoulder belts aren't on some buses, that those buses aren't you know, aren't the best mode of transportation for your child. We're just trying to say, hey, what else can we do to help parents and teachers and school districts ask for more of their school bus um, transportation? What else can they be looking for? And as parents are learning about the benefits of three-point belts, they're asking their school districts to focus on that when they do purchase new buses. And school districts are actually focusing on that. They're, They're taking their budgets and aiming them in that direction. And we think that's a wonderful turn. Um, but there is also other areas like the training of our school bus drivers and, and mm-hmm. our routing and some of the things we can do to keep people from passing school buses illegally that all add to that safety picture. And I think that's where we really want to go with this is every little part of the puzzle we fill in with safety enhancements make it makes it just that much better on getting your child to and from your home or wherever they reside to the school and back. Right. And to bring it back to what Stephanie was talking about with the um, the egg crate analogy and, and the video that we developed a couple of years ago, which is available on our website, um, we do talk about our seatbelts uh, recommendation. And we kind of give the analogy that with the seatbelts installed on school buses, it's almost like closing the top of the egg carton and really securing the child into their exact spot where they're supposed to stay. So for our listeners who are trying to get kind of a little bit of a visual on that, maybe that's helpful in terms of, you know, seatbelts on school buses is like closing the egg carton instead of having the eggs just kind of exposed from a top, from the top. <laughs> Michelle, you've touched on a couple of other um, safety areas that we've identified through um, our investigations. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, some recent ones, specifically Baltimore and Chattanooga and then Oakland, Iowa, which is a, a more recent one where we found that driver oversight was um, a concern and a problem in those areas. Can you just talk a little bit about what we learned from those investigations as it relates to that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So in in the Baltimore, Maryland case, uh, one of the things that we saw, which we also saw reflected again in, in the Oakland, Iowa um, crash investigation, is that while we have school bus drivers that outwardly may appear um, to be physically fit, to do their job, some people have had some concerns because doing the job of simply driving the bus is not quite the same as being able to do all the safety duties incumbent upon our school bus drivers. So I'll start with Baltimore. In Baltimore, um, outwardly, we had a gentleman who did have his um, medical commercial driver's license certificate to say he was medically fit to drive school buses. One that was unfortunate was that a lot of his coworkers and some of his supervisors were noticing that he was having a lot of medical conditions that were actually disqualifying to be a school bus driver, and he was having repetitive crashes to which some of those medical conditions should have been a real red flag. And we saw that those were um, not heeded as the warnings that they should have been. And so this school bus driver in Baltimore was able to be driving a bus. And unfortunately, he had a, um, a medical episode while he was driving and had a, um, a fatal crash. And so what we saw in that case and then saw in Oakland is that folks, parents, 
um, supervisors, other bus drivers, if you see something that doesn't look quite right, meaning you're, you have some concerns, there are ways to ask um, either your own supervisor, if you're a fellow bus driver, quietly, or to request that the state come back in and take a look at that driver to see whether or not they are um, not only medically fit, but can they physically do their job as a bus driver in an emergency? And that's really what we also want, right? We have our school bus drivers. They have a huge amount on their plate just to get our kids to and from school. But it's that, that parental responsibility that we're handing over to a school bus driver that if there's an emergency, how can you help my child? And we want to make sure that there are physical fitness qualifications that are not to the point where it's excluding someone from being a bus driver, but in fact, just making sure that if there's an emergency, that as the adult on that bus, they can actually help the kids evacuate. They can help in an emergency. And those are just a couple of physical qualifications that a, that a driver has to do that school districts are perfectly allowed to go and ask their drivers to show, you know, once a year or once every, um, I guess I would say, cool school season to kind of show that they can do some of these maneuvers. And they're not onerous. There are things like getting up and down the, the front steps in a pretty quick amount of time. It, it is getting in and out of the rear emergency doors if you have to help kids evacuate. Some of those are the things that we're just looking to make sure that our bus drivers are able to do, not just sit in the seat and drive the bus itself, but also help the kids. And, and that's mm -hmm. what we're looking for. And so some of the things um, in those two cases we've asked is that, you know, if students or parents, caregivers, other school staff, if they observe um, either unsafe bus driver behavior, which I'll talk about from the Chattanooga, Tennessee case in a second, but if they also um, want to report unsafe driver conditions, meaning you're not quite sure that that driver is physically able to help those kids when it's truly, truly desperate to help them in an emergency. There are mechanisms out there to try to make sure that that person has some intervention to see if whether or not they can do all the duties of a, of a safe school bus driver they need to do. The third case is Chattanooga, Tennessee, and in that case, we had... Um, Yes, he was medically qualified, and yes, he was a physically fit uh, school bus driver, but some of the things he was exhibiting during his training and as he was starting his routing with his kids were very concerning to parents, and there was a lot of complaints that the parents were giving to the school system about some of the things they were seeing the driver do, speeding, swerving, um, breaking hard to get kids to fall out of their seats when the kids were getting a little bit too loud. So things that should have also been red flags were things that were being ignored by supervisors. And some of the things that led to the actual crash in Chattanooga, which unfortunately resulted in six fatal school bus children, mm -hmm. um, some of those things could have been prevented, um, meaning he could have been sort of pulled out of his routing, retrained, given a chance to learn some um, management skills that, you know, he was clearly lacking in. And so some of those are things if students and, and caregivers, again, school staff, if they observe that unsafe driver behavior, there are mechanisms in school districts, and we encourage school districts to make that very visible and known to, to everybody about how to report a driver in their unsafe behavior because they need to step in at that point and really reassess that driver's ability to handle his duties or her duties. And so those are some of the things that we have pointed out is, again, filling in the gaps or filling in the pieces of the puzzles to make this as safe as possible to get these kids to and from school. That's Those are items that, yes, most school bus drivers do a phenomenal job. Mm -hmm. um, and most are absolutely fit to do the, the work they need to do, but there are some that aren't. And those are the cases that we're going and seeing when we see school bus crashes and things that we want to highlight that still need some work to be done. And with that, just as, you know, again, as we're getting started back with school and everything, even um, if it's not a parent or a student, um, 
giving the giving the um, alert to the school transportation, I'm sure a lot of uh, teachers probably hear chatter of their students on, you know, when they get to school, if there was a wild bus ride or, you know, if they hear something that they also have the capacity um, and duty to to report this type of behavior. But I wonder if anyone is ever feeling intimidated. Is there a way to kind of an anonymously share this information with the school transportation, um, you know, in case anyone feels concerned about, you know, sharing this? I'm sure that there are some concerns. I mean, I, I can understand that concept. Um, when it comes to the medical condition, or if you're concerned that someone isn't physically fit to do their job as school bus drivers, a lot of times there's a medical review board at the state licensing office that you can anonymous, anonymously um, ask them to just take a look at that driver. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're reporting them. It doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily be in trouble. It just mm-hmm. means it's an independent outside group coming in and saying, you know, is this person's medical condition or, or even if it's something onset, like rapidly, you know, an acute situation where maybe they need to take two weeks outside of the school bus, um, they can come in and take a look at that anonymously and say, you know, yes, with an unbiased set of eyes, like, yeah, we think that there's a real concern here. That's for the medical condition or physical fitness. When you also talk about either, um, management of the students on board the bus or in, you know, reactions to things that they shouldn't be doing or speeding or swerving or any of these other actions. Typically, most school districts have a reporting line where you can call in and kind Mm -hmm. of let the other um, supervisors know that you're seeing these things. And that absolutely should be done. Parents should expect that their bus drivers are providing their children a safe um, ride to school. And if as a parent, you see something that's very concerning, you know, and you're not getting the reaction that you think you need from those you have reported it to, you would just work your way up through the school district chain. And I think that that, what we've called on to the other school districts is that they actually make that abundantly clear to to both their staff, as well as the parents, like how to make those recordings come through, because we think that's, that's where there's an intervention that can really make sure that safety is, is a priority here. Mm -hmm. Sure. Member Graham, I can't help but think that there's some lessons learned or a little bit of overlap from the aviation industry as it relates to this, as, you know, we're looking at commercial operators and there's people who, you know, thinking of flight attendants, their role is also to help in the case of emergency, much like school bus drivers. And I know that reporting and and those sorts of issues are something that the aviation community has, has tackled and has done well. Are there any lessons learned that you can share or anything that comes to mind as as we're talking about oversight and that reporting and even the non-punitive reporting so that people don't have to worry about, you know, any you know negative thing that might happen? Abs- absolutely. Uh, we, yeah, the aviation industry learned the hard way, but uh, that's why they use the safety management systems extensively now. And when you look at that, there's four foundations to a SMS, a safety management system. One's policy and procedure. Two is risk management. Three is safety assurance. And four is safety promotion. So when you're, uh, most operators, I would, whether it's aviation or school bus drivers or the school bus, uh, company, uh, or the school district, they, they probably know their risks, most of their risk out there. But how do you really know all the risks that are going on out there? So, as an SMS, everybody has a role in the safety management system. And in case of school bus, school buses, the students, the, they're the passengers, the parents, the teachers, the school bus drivers, uh, the administration, everybody has a role in this. And um, 
the reporting is very important. So you have policy and procedure, but how do you know if it's working? And one way is through reporting. So there should be a, uh, a non-punitive reporting system, one for the drivers. They're, they're out there every day. They ought to be able to let their company or the school district know of the hazards out there. So they ought to be able to anonymously report the hazards out there. Also, the students and the parents should be able to do the same. And a big part of that is uh, communicating what what the results of the investigation are and any changes that may happen. So um, if there are some issues and you see trends with, with hazards out there, then the company or the school district should be communicating any kind of policy changes, things like that, and keep the lines of communication open because that's the only way you really assure that your your management system is working, right? So that's a big way. The other way is um, using recorders. Um, I'm, I'm aware that there are some recorders out there. A lot of them, I think, have been for keeping an eye on the student behavior in the bus, but the <laughs> same can be also for uh, the driver, and then I think there's also cameras out there for law enforcement now with the stop arms and everything to get mm-hmm. it. So uh, that's just a way to, to look at what's going on out there, monitor the the hazards that are out there daily, and then go about, if you see trends, go, out, go ahead and mitigate it, whether it's new policy and procedures or, um, you know, having to uh, um, maybe change bus routing or something like that uh, or get law enforcement involved with uh, uh, car pa- illegal car passing. Sure. Um, a little over a year ago, uh, we, the NTSB, completed the investigation of the 2017 bus fire in Oakland, Iowa. Um, Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about this incident and what we determined as the cause to be? Sure. Um you know, one of the things that we saw in this crash, so I'll back up and tell you about it. It was um, a case that happened in December and a in a rural route in Oakland where a school bus driver had gone to pick up a student at her home and was pulling out of her driveway in reverse. Um, now, this is on a very rural road, not even paved, and ended up um, somehow the school bus uh, rear tires ended up in a roadside ditch. And the driver was unable to drive the bus out of the ditch. And unfortunately, as a result of um, those efforts to drive the bus out of the ditch, a, a fire started. And the bus driver and the student were both fatally killed in that uh, bus fire. And so one of the things that we took a look at is what was the cause? Why did that bus driver end up in that ditch? And you know, we have a situation where we couldn't 100% say exactly what caused that driver to end up in the ditch. But what we did find was that leading up to that day, the driver had been um, undergoing some acute medical conditions in which he was unable to walk without the assistance of a walker. He was due to go in for back surgery um, pretty much, I believe it was like the next day. And so one of the things that we had some serious concerns about was that he had been seen by other members of the school district, you know, clearly unable to, um, I would say, ambulate to the extent to which he would have been physically fit to assist in an emergency. And so as a result of some of the things that we saw, 
we found that we really needed to take a look again at, at, at physical qualifications for the job, right? It's not a question of whether or not um, you are able to just drive the bus by using the accelerator and pushing on the brake and looking in the mirrors. It's, it's how exactly can you maneuver yourself and students through the bus in an emergency and evacuate in, some, in a case like this. So mm-hmm. that was one of the issues that we took a look at. And a lot of school districts across the country have actually looked at the same thing. There are some school districts that require physical fitness testing of their school bus drivers every year and some uh, school districts and states that do not. But a lot of those states are reevaluating that policy because they understand the necessary, um, I, I would say, duties of a school bus driver in not just getting the kids to and from school, but what happens if there is an emergency? What if there's a flat tire? What if they have to get the kids off because something else is happening around them? And so there's a lot of things to take a look at for that physical fitness. And it's just not whether or not the driver has a medical certification to um, to have a commercial driver's license. It's also are they physically fit to do the job in all realms of the job. Mm-hmm. The second thing that we took a look at it in this case is that here you are having a, a bus that did not have a fire previous to when the bus went into the ditch. And again, only the back tire had been in the ditch. But what we did find was that um, there was a combustion that started a grass fire and it also started an internal fire. We see about 60% of school bus fires start in the engine. And the rapid progression of this particular fire from the engine into the passenger compartment where the driver and the student passenger were was quite rapid. And what ended up happening was both of those individuals were overcome. And and like I said, they were killed. And what do we want to look at is we see this growing trend in the school bus um, arena where a lot of buses are catching on fire. It could be that they're in the school bus yard. It could be they're out on routes. Now, fortunately, we have seen that most school bus drivers can recognize that there's something going on and they pull over in time and they can evacuate the kids. Mm-hmm. But what we want to look at is what happens in a case like, unfortunately, in Oakland where they aren't able to evacuate in time. How do we, how do we lengthen the amount of time that occupants in school buses have between when a fire starts and when they're able to get out. It's kind of a similar concept that you would see maybe um, in other modes of transportation is is extending the survivability time to get that evacuation underway. And, and so we were looking at the firewall between the engine compartment and the passenger compartment in the school bus and how can we enhance the protection. So there's two ways to do that. One is to strengthen the firewall itself between the engine compartment and the driver's sitting area by mm-hmm. using... Um, components that are already out there on the market, things that are more um, resistant to flame and more um, protective of the airways so that smoke doesn't get from the engine into the passenger compartment. The second part of that is how can we eliminate the fires from even moving beyond a flame stage? And fortunately, in the school bus industry, there's already fire suppression systems out there. And these fire Mm -hmm. suppression systems are attached in the engine compartment and as soon as they detect heat or um, a fire, they immediately disperse enough fire retardant material in there to put the fire out. And that, of course, is exactly what we want. We want these school bus folks, um, the kids, the teachers, and the aides, the bus driver, to be able to get off the bus in time. And by eliminating the fire source and then having an evacuation, that gives everybody the time to get out of that bus. And so that's what we're really looking at in that case is what other technologies can we use on a school bus? And fire suppression systems are one of those that we recognize have a significant safety benefit. The other part of that is school systems are recognizing the significant safety benefit of fire suppression just on a return of investment standpoint in that when you have a school bus fire in an engine, 
you can save the rest of the school bus. It doesn't all have to go up in flames. And so what they're looking at it is, hey, all in all, that allows us to continue to put other safety improvements on our buses by knowing that we can, um, you know, put the fires out faster should they happen with a fire suppression system. And it's a pretty inexpensive add-on that we're finding is really worth it in the long run. So mm-hmm. we think that it's a great safety feature. And I think the industry is really picking up on that. And, and we're seeing a lot of school districts implement that into their buses now when they're going to purchase new school buses. And it's, it's also something that can be retrofit. And so mm-hmm. we really encourage everybody to take a look at fire suppression systems and how they can implement those in their school bus fleet. Great. Michelle, I think that's a, a good segue into the discussion of technology um, in general. And Member Graham, you are the lead board member for our um, most wanted list issue on adopting and implementing collision avoidance technologies. So while the fire suppression system certainly isn't going to prevent a school bus crash, um, we do know that there are some technologies that we've recommended that could help um, assist drivers in the event of a crash. So could you mention or talk about a few of the technologies um, that we've recommended that would actually assist a driver um, in the event they, um, you know, it might experience a crash. You bet. Um, as you know, collision avoidance technology uh, mitigates or prevents crashes by detecting moving, uh, stopped, or stationary vehicles ahead. And uh, when appropriate, if these systems are equipped with automatic emergency braking systems, it'll apply the brakes and prevent or at least mitigate the severity of the collision. Uh, in the case of the uh, Baltimore crash that we talked about, the uh, the bus driver was medically incapacitated when he uh, struck the car and entered. then eventually entered the oncoming traffic and struck the transit bus. Uh, the the uh, board concluded that uh, the a newly manufactured school bus in the case of the Baltimore crash, the, if it had been equipped with uh, Ford collision avoidance systems and automatic emergency braking system, uh, the initial impact with the car would likely have been mitigated, and subsequently the uh, following impact with the with the uh, transit bus would not have occurred. In the case of the Chattanooga crash, uh, the uh, Driver lost control of his 2008 school bus, and uh, he was basically speeding and had some erratic uh, control inputs to the steering. And we concluded that um, had the newly a newly manufactured school bus in this case been equipped with electronic stability control, uh, the technology could have assisted the driver in maintaining the control of the vehicle and mitigated the severity of the crash by reducing the speed of the school bus. Um, although we know the statistics out there that the school buses offer the safest form of transportation for getting our kids to and from school, we also know that collision avoidance systems, automatic emergency braking systems, electronic stability control offer a large safety benefit in helping and preventing, and in this case mitigating in some cases the severity of crashes um, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration put out in 2018, they looked at 91 crashes from 2007 to 2016 in which uh, at least uh, one occupant of a school transportation vehicle died. Out of that, 60% involved at least one other vehicle. 45% of those involved frontal uh, frontal impact. So although 
a drowsy driver, distracted driver, or an impaired driver may require more time to detect a potential conflict and initiate an avoidance maneuver. We know that collision avoidance systems and their technology behind them may, or at very least, lessen the severity of the collision. In the case of the Baltimore and uh, Chattanooga report, the NTSB reiterated recommendations to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to develop stability control system performance for all commercial vehicles over 10,000 pounds and issued new recommendations to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to require all new school buses to be equipped with collision avoidance systems and automatic emergency braking technologies. Now, unfortunately, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, we call NHTSA, uh, may be a little hesitant to mandate these critical safety features. We actually want to urge the uh, school districts out there to request this kind of equipment on, on new school buses that they purchase in the future. Great. Thank you. And um, Meg, we know that collision avoidance technology um, isn't the only type of technology that can impact school bus safety. Can you talk about other types of technology that we've recommended for school buses? Absolutely. In, um, in the Rochester crash, um, that we'll talk about in more detail in a moment, but briefly, that involved a, a vehicle passing a school bus just as students were crossing the road to board that bus, and the vehicle um, collided with the students, um, killing three students. Um, so one of the things we focused on in that report was how do we make um, these school buses safer and what technologies can we look at to make it safer for students as they're boarding um, the school bus. And so just to highlight a couple, one of the things that we looked at was supplemental lighting. Um, this is lighting that's essentially just attached to the outside of the bus. It casts a light across the roadway over to the students. Um, it enables both the bus driver and motorists that are approaching the school bus to see the students as they cross that roadway. Um, we looked at extended stop arms, and I believe Member Graham mentioned the stop arms on the school buses. These are stop arms that kind of come right out from the school bus. Um, the extended arm, though, extends that stop arm and that stop um, stop sign across the lane of traffic, um, mm -hmm. giving the uh, motorists even more awareness that there's a school bus and that they should stop for that school bus. Um, we looked at something called a predictive stop arm. This is a, a system that uses radar to assess the movement of approaching vehicles. Um, and they have an algorithm that they use in a, to determine whether or not that vehicle is likely to stop. And if they determine that it's not likely to stop, they provide a, it provides an audible warning to the students telling them to get out of the road that the vehicle is not stopping. Um, and we also looked at, at enforcement technology, uh, the stop arm cameras that we previously talked about. This is a way to assist the school bus drivers who are busy watching children, loading the school bus, um, to assist them in ways that, um, that as a car or a vehicle passes them illegally, rather than them having to record that information, the uh, camera can record that information, which can then be passed on to the police and, and either a warning or a citation be issued to that driver. Um, but it's not just about the school bus and the technology on the school bus, and especially in these circumstances of protecting the children as they cross a roadway. Uh, 
vehicles also have technology that can be added on to to supplement their safety. One of the things we looked at was the pedestrian automatic emergency braking systems. And these are systems that detect a pedestrian as they're uh, crossing the roadway and will either automatically apply or supplement the braking of the vehicle to stop. Now, there are some limitations to these systems. Um, They don't necessarily work in all speeds. They've been tested up to about 40 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is something that is, though, where operationally where school buses often operate, right, in our Mm -hmm. residential areas. So pedestrian, uh, the PAEBs, these detection systems and automatic braking systems, uh, could be something that can be used and added to our motor vehicles as they um, are are approaching school buses and and children who are crossing those roadways. And then finally, we know that automated vehicles are also on the increase. These are rapidly developing, um, being tested on our roadways. Uh, But we want to make sure that these automated vehicles in their testing and development are considering school buses. These school buses operate in a different environment, right? They stop and they are one of the few vehicles that controls surrounding traffic. Mm -hmm. Other traffic has to stop for them. And so that's a little bit out of the norm for some of the traditional vehicles. So we want to make sure that as they are developed, that school buses are considered in those developmental plans for school buses. It is. For the automated vehicles. And since you mentioned the the school buses becoming basically a traffic enforcement or traffic control device, um, it's a great opportunity just to put out a reminder to anyone listening because I've seen some um, I've seen some stir- surveys of um, communities uh, just asking you know do you know what you're supposed to do when you see a school bus stop and a lot of uh, citizens just they don't have the right answer they don't understand that when the stop arm is deployed and it's got the flashing lights and everything that means it's time for traffic in all directions to stop and wait for the school bus to do their job of loading or unloading children and it's not okay for them to proceed until the stop arm goes back um, against the bus and so I think it's just a good opportunity right now to remind anyone listening that if you see a school bus with the flashing lights going out um, or going on that means that they're about to stop and when they do stop the stop line the stop arm that comes out means it's a stop sign for everyone it's time to stop so just a little plug there right. <laughs> Meg you mentioned the the Rochester Indiana crash well crash investigation can you just provide a some of the details around that particular crash. Sure. Um, so this um, school bus was pulled over to the side of the road. It was um, had stopped at a, at a designated stop area. There were t- 10 students waiting for the school bus, uh, and they had seen the school bus. They were waiting behind a fence where it was safe. Um, they saw the school bus approach. They started entering the road. The school bus was completely stopped, lights on, stop arm extended. And just as the four, just as the students were entering the road, uh, a pickup truck from the opposite direction that was approaching, traveling at about a speed of 58, 59 miles per hour, and for some reason, the driver failed to stop. As, unfortunately, this was also at the same time as the students had just entered the roadway. And, um, as I mentioned, the, the pickup truck struck the four children, uh, killing three of them and seriously injuring the fourth the fourth student in that crash. Um, 
we determined that for some reason the, um, the probable cause of that crash was that the pickup truck failed to stop um, for unknown reasons. We weren't able to actually identify why. But also contributing to that crash was the Tippecanoe Valley School Corporations, um, which was the school district overseeing this um, area. Sure. Was there um, inadequate safety assessment of school bus routes that required pedestrians to cross. And here's the key part. They were crossing a 55-mile-per-hour roadway. This was a state uh, road, 55 miles per hour. And that increases their risk of injury, certainly, as compared mm-hmm. to a lower-speed roadway. And we also found that they had a failure in establishing um, a clear pro- policy for um, how school bus drivers are to handle that traffic surrounding the, um, the, the traffic surrounding um, and a, a school bus as they're waiting for it. Sure. And I also, oh. how, how common is it for, you, you had mentioned the speed of this particular roadway, but around the country, how, how common is it for students to be crossing a roadway at that, you know, with that posted speed limit? Um, you know, I think it's more common than we expect. At the same time, or right around the same time as the um, Rochester crash, we were notified, the NTSB was notified of two other crashes that occurred at the same time um, involving children crossing a high-speed rural roadway, 55 miles per hour. As they were crossing the roadway, the approaching vehicles failed to stop um, and, and struck the students. And I think there were... There were um, Two other students um, killed in those crashes, and one was uh, seriously injured in those crashes. Um, and a couple of other things to point out among these crashes is that these all happened in the early morning hours, in the dark, mm-hmm. in rural area where there was very little additional lighting other than the lights on the school bus. So, sure. you know, things, other situations yeah. like that. Member Graham, do you, could you talk a little bit about um, illegal passing and and how big of a problem that is um, across the country? You bet. I was actually preparing for my second board meeting when that uh, the Rochester uh, crash was presented right. to us, and because of COVID and everything, uh, it was decided that we weren't going to do a board meeting virtually because we couldn't. You know, we were racing to try to figure out how to do this in this new. Uh, new environment we're in, but um, it was staggering to me as part of the report that was presented to the board was one thing that really stood out to me and absolutely shocked me uh, was uh, there was a statistic in there that the National Association of State Directors of Pupil Transportation Services estimates that each year up to 17 million vehicles illegally pass school buses when the bus warning lights are on and the stop arm is extended. And that number is just way too high. And Mm -hmm. just think about the risk and the number of students that are put at risk for each one of those illegal crossings. It's, it's, uh, the number is staggering to me. Yeah. I, I admit too, I had no idea that it was that, um, it was that high until to the report as well. Um, another, um, area, Meg, that I know that you all highlighted in that investigation is the idea of routing and, you know, what can you do to better protect students so that they aren't, you know, if if a bus stop has to be on a 55 mile an hour roadway, what can you do to really reduce as much as you can the risk to students 
Member Graham, do you want to talk a little bit about routing and some of the things that we've recommended for for ways to address some of those issues? You bet. Yeah. Out of that Rochester investigation and ultimately our our report and everything, uh, there were like there were three issues that are identified in that case. Uh, one was the deficiencies in establishing safe school bus routes and stop locations. The second was the uh, failure of other drivers to stop or otherwise respond safely when approaching a school bus that is stopped with its warning lights on and the stop arm extended. And then the third was uh, the need for greater use of technologies to prevent these collisions with and mitigate the injuries of the uh, student pedestrians. So school districts, law enforcement, and others in the community who make routing decisions should minimize the use of school bus stops that require students to cross a roadway, especially a high-speed roadway in this case. And they should, anytime a stop or a route is changed, they should uh, do a risk assessment of it. And at minimum, they should be doing it at least yearly. Sure. I have to admit, I live in a rural area. And um, when we when the, the board was investigating this particular crash, my children are actually on a relatively low speed roadway. But there's a our bus stop is on one side of the road and the people who live directly across from us, their bus stop is on the other side of the road. Um, and I it never really occurred to me to just think about how um, what a safety um, benefit that was for both students. And then also, you know, it's really easy to say, oh, if my daughter missed the bus, you know, she could just run over and get the, you know, catch the bus on the other side. But um, investigations like this really point out to parents that while that may be convenient, um, that we really are could potentially be putting our kids at a risk that we didn't even realize um, for doing that. And I know that I appreciate the fact that her bus ride might be about 30 minutes longer <laughs> for that safety benefit than, you know, if she jumped across the street when, when she missed the bus. So um, I, I admit I have four kids and that was the first time I really thought about, um, you know, just that risk. Good point. Very good point. So we've talked a lot today about the school transportation community and what they can do to improve transportation safety for students, but uh, they're not the only ones that can take action to ensure students arrive to school and home safely again. Um, citizens out on the road, drivers uh, like you and I um, can definitely do our part, but it's been five months since most drivers have seen school buses stopping to pick up and drop off students at bus stops, um, and even also walking and biking to school. So um, we have our safety reminder campaign that we've had going on this whole summer um, for all modes of transportation on how to remind or how to um, kind of give reminders to drivers on, and, and also other um, modal operators how to stay safe as we kind of get back to our normal um, daily operations. But um, Member Graham, what safety reminders do you have for drivers around school bus safety as schools work? on reopening? Well, you bet. I think, uh, you know, we've been uh, locked down here for a while and uh, we're not used to seeing the the students out there, for one thing. Mm -hmm. So I think drivers need to be aware that there's a lot more pedestrian traffic. We've got students playing in the playgrounds, uh, walking to and from school, walking to and from the school bus stop, crossing the streets so that 
that extra pedestrian traffic out there, we need to be aware of it. We need to slow down and be aware. And secondly, we're, we're not used to seeing the school buses out there. It's <laughs> been an unusually long time. And uh-huh. just be cautious and be aware. If you see a school bus, you need, be, need to be prepared to stop. And um, also be patient. Okay. Let them load uh-huh. and unload that precious cargo and don't be in a hurry and try to race around them uh, to beat the school bus arm or the flashing red lights. Um, just, just take it easy and be cautious and uh, let's not put our students at any unnecessary risk. Absolutely. We are at the uh, end of our podcast time, and I just want to give an opportunity to our guests um, to share any final thoughts before we close out. So, Michelle, do you have anything that you'd like to say as we wrap up? Sure. I would just like to absolutely acknowledge um, all of the people in the school bus industry, whether those um, it's all the way up from, you know, state directors of people transportation to school bus drivers and and parents and teachers, as well as, you know, students who act as monitors on buses, you know, and to the school bus manufacturing groups that we recognize how hard they work to make it a safe environment for our kids to get to and from school. And and we absolutely appreciate that. And one of our mission um, achievements is to simply be transparent on why we say what we say. Um, why we recommend what we do and how to encourage folks to, to take a look at it as a recommendation to improve safety. It's not necessarily that we don't see all the amazing benefits that they've, they've created and all the policies and procedures they have in place. It's that where can we come in and help them understand why the crashes that we've investigated ended up happening and, and how they can even improve safety at a, at a school that hasn't even had a crash. How can they mm-hmm. continue to have such great safe transportation for their kids. And so that's one of the reasons why we really work so hard to investigate all of these school bus crashes is just to help the industry um, so that no parent has to lose a child in what is otherwise an incredibly safe way to get their kids to and from school. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you. for that, Michelle. Meg? Meg? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, thanks for the opportunity to just remind everybody that this is the time of year we will see more school buses out there, more children out there. Um, take your time. Uh, stop for that school bus that's waiting there. Um, and, and to remind everybody that this is a shared responsibility. This is a shared mm-hmm. responsibility between the school, the parents, and the students to um, remember that safety is important. Look across the, look both ways before you cross the road and, um, you'll get back and forth to school safely. Absolutely. And Member Graham? I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today and uh, just remind everybody that uh, school bus transportation has an incredible safety record. It really is when you look at the numbers here. Uh, and let's we all got to work together, like it's been said, to to keep it that way. So let's work really hard, be aware, be heads up, and let's keep it that give it, let's keep that great safety record it already has. Thanks. And Stephanie, do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up? I do. We've talked a lot about the school bus today, and we know that school transportation is certainly bigger than just um, the school bus. So as we're, we're talking about the things that, you know, students haven't been walking and biking to school 
you know, since March, just encouraging parents and caregivers, like we said, um, practice that walk to school with your with your children. And maybe even for the ones who are catching the bus, just remind them of, you know, how to be as safe as possible and where to safely stand as they're waiting for their for their bus. So just practicing all of those safety messages and those um, that we know, but might have forgotten over the last couple of months. Thanks, Steph. And I will, again, just echo um, the good work that the school transportation industry does and has done for years. Um, there's a reason it's one of the safest forms of transportation. And having worked with that uh, industry prior to my time at uh, NTSB when I was at NHTSA, I got to know a lot of the state directors and a lot of um, people involved in the industry. And they just are 100% dedicated to the safety of students and getting them to and from school as safe as possible. So again, a big Thank you to um, to all those groups that are working hard to keep those numbers so low. Um, thank you to our guests today for joining us. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Meg, Michelle, and Member Graham. And thank you again to my awesome co-host, Stephanie Shaw. And thank you to James Anderson, who does such a great job working with us to make us sound amazing, even when we are still in this virtual space and recording these podcasts remotely. So thank you, everyone, again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. And we will talk to you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye. Bye.